Welcome to Gesundheit with Jacobus Health Talk Radio, integrating allopathic and all natural medicine one show at a time. Here is your host, Jacobus Hollowine. And good morning, everybody. Welcome to the program. This is Gesundheit with Jacobus. I am your host, Jacobus Hollowine. We are on every Sunday morning from 7 to 10, talking about health, healing, and healthy lifestyles, be it physical, mental, emotional, or spiritual. And we do it with the experts, give them a chance to chat about something they're really good at or something they're just passionate about. So we let them pick the topic or we talk about their, their work. As always, as we talk about these topics, we're not here to treat, diagnose, or cure. We're here to inform and educate and entertain you with information and always suggest that if you hear something that you have questions or doubts about, get a second opinion. Go to a physician of your choice and or read some great information that's out there in the libraries, on the internet, through reputable periodicals. Find information that is important for you and your health and for those who are close to you. So uh, thank you so much for tuning in today. Uh, we're having really a wonderful program. I'm excited about today's guest, uh, somebody brand new to the area, Dr. Robert Shaney. He just moved over here from uh, California, and he's been uh, in Seattle, Seattle area for a long time. We had a very nice talk right before the program, and uh, we're going to talk with him about uh, pulmonary health, lung health. So let me tell you something about him. He is a medical doctor as well as a fellow of the American College of Physicians. Dr. Shaney is a graduate of Princeton and Columbia College of Physicians and Surgeons, New York, and recently moved right here to the Gallatin Valley. He is working at Bozeman Deaconess Hospital at the in, uh, Internal Medicine. He's a pulmonary critical care physician specializing in lung health at higher elevations. He was also a professor of medicine at the University of Washington until 2003 and a professor of medicine in, uh, at the University of San Diego, as well as an, an associate director of WAMI uh, from the University of Washington. Dr. Shaney was a member of the 1981 American Medical Research Expedition to Mount Everest as the climber scientist, and he went as a researcher on other projects in Alaska and South America, including two Denali medical research projects. Dr. Shaney has also served on the board of the Wilderness Medical Society. He has co-written several books on high-altitude pulmonary health, and uh, some of those I got right here, uh, the latest one was called High Altitude Medicine and Physiology, and uh, that is the fourth edition, I understand, that came out just, just this last year. Uh, his residency was done at the University of Washington, Seattle, in internal medicine, and he has a fellowship of the University of Washington, Seattle Division of Respiratory Diseases. You can, you can uh, contact Dr. Robert Cheney through the Bozeman Deaconess Internal Medicine. He's one of the associates, and they're located on Highland Boulevard, and you can contact him, him or you can contact him over there at 522-2400, 522 2400. Well, Dr. Shaney, thanks so much for being here today. Good morning. Quite a story. It always amazes me, uh, people who travel and, and climb mountains, and that is, an, that is a specialty, and you need to have a passion for that uh, because it physically it is phenomenal. And for you to go to the Mount Everest, it must have been quite a young age. Well, uh, it was. I was uh, very lucky to go there. And I was part, as you mentioned, of a research expedition mm -hmm. that was focused on looking at the limits of human performance at extreme altitude. Mm -hmm. And we were very fortunate to be there at a time when uh, we were the only people there. Mm -hmm. It was sort of the end of an era of Everest climbing when Nepal or China at that time only allowed one team in. Now, as you know, 
hundreds or thousands of people are there uh, every season. But we had uh, two and a half months to ourselves on Mount Everest. Oh, wow. That's to, a long time. To work, uh, doing research, exercise physiology, sleep physiology, nutrition, as well as uh, neuropsychometric testing to see what the effect of extreme altitude is, lack of oxygen on the human brain at those altitudes. Mm -hmm. And we had a wonderful group of people, many of whom are still, many of us are still very close friends and some of us still working together. Wow. In fact, John West, who was the leader of that expedition, was the one that I co-wrote the book with yeah, along yeah, with yeah. Jim Millage mm -hmm. uh, just recently. And John is down at the University of California, San Diego, where I was the last uh, four and a half years. Uh-huh. When you go on an expedition like that, um, you, there's nobody who went before you who did this kind of work, I take it. I mean, uh, people were going up to climb. But how do you start up a project like that? What were some of the questions that you came up with uh, that you say, well, we need to check this and this and this, and then how do you find the instrumentation to actually do the testing? Well, it was a very sophisticated scientific research endeavor. And John West and Jim Millage and another uh, famous pulmonary physiologist, uh, Dr. Lahiri, who was at the University of Pennsylvania then, but in 1960 and 61, they had been to the Himalaya when they were young physiologists mm. to look at adaptation or acclimatization to about 19,000 feet, hmm. where they had a camp set up near Amadablam, which is not too far from the Everest area. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and it was an area, actually, that I climbed in in 1976, a beautiful area. Yeah. But uh, John and uh, his colleagues and Sir Edmund Hillary had this expedition to see if it uh, was an advantage to live at, say, 19,000 feet before going to much, much higher altitudes. Uh, Makalu, the fifth highest peak in the world, was the peak that they were going to try to go climb. As it turns out, that altitude was too high. Okay. for humans to adapt. And I, I guess I should start out by saying humans were probably tropical creatures okay. uh, evolutionarily. <laughs> and altitude isn't where we should be, but we can talk about that later. But anyway. Now, just the 19,000. 19,000 19, is, is so way too high. high. Yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah. And so rather I than... Mean, if, if, to just to jump in here, like what were some of the things that they saw? What were some of the things that happened that they said this is too mm -hmm. high? What were some of the... Well, the original hypothesis was that by living at that altitude, the adaptation would... Uh, improve their performance and survivability at much higher altitudes. But what they found was that exercise capacity decreased mm -hmm. slowly over time. Okay. Oh, slowly over time? Yeah. Okay. Because they were there in the winter of 1661. I think they were up there for almost four months. Wow. So they were able to test themselves over a long period of time. And they had fairly sophisticated research gear there. And that was called the Silver Hut Expedition, a very famous high-altitude uh, mm -hmm. trip. Mm -hmm. So John and Jim and uh, Dr. Lahiri still had this sense of adventure and sense of uh, collegiality and teamwork from the 1960 and 61, so that in the late 70s, John particularly wanted to put together a trip, uh, a very highly technical research expedition to look at exercise performance, which was the main focus of the expedition mm -hmm. at 21 to 29,000 feet, which is where wow. we, we were there uh, at those altitudes for uh, about six weeks. Wow. And again, this was in the old days. Uh, Everest wasn't climbed very often. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. so that prior to our expedition, there was a lot of criticism that we were going over there to do research and climb and that we would not be able to do either. But 
Dr. West, uh, John did a terrific job of putting together a, a great team that worked together very well, wow. who uh, cared for each other and had a common goal to try to climb the peak. And we did get three people to the, the summit. Mm. We had did an exercise. You, go? you went? I didn't quite make the summit. I, I got to about 25,000 feet. But we had an exercise laboratory at 25,000 feet as well as at 21,000 feet. Uh-huh. So we did all kinds of testing like we do in the laboratory at lower altitudes mm-hmm. for patients or for athletes mm-hmm. to look at uh, maximum oxygen consumption and work capacity and so forth. Yeah, yeah. And it, nutrition is the other interesting aspect too. Yeah. I guess one other point uh, about what they found in 1661 and that we and others have found too is that at a certain altitude you lose weight. Oh. You can't stay nourished. There's malabsorption in the, the gut. And that it's a little bit different for everybody, but certainly above 17,000 feet, humans can't really live for long periods But do you of time. get bloated then, or you just don't feel hungry? No, it's decrease in appetite, plus it's a decrease in absorption. And we did some uh, gastrointestinal absorption studies that we do at lower altitude in patients, but right. we uh, redid those at high altitude too. So you don't absorb food as well. It may just be... No one knows for sure, but the decreased oxygen availability in the gut okay. to carry on its normal absorption capacities. Correct. And also... Uh, but, I mean, what would happen then? Would people get constipated or would they get diarrhea or would they no, have it, none it, of that? No, none of that. It's just a, part of it's a decrease in appetite and part of it, what you eat, you just don't absorb it all. But it's not a, a gross malabsorption like patients with bad bowel disease get. It. Okay, it's, not know, like that. It's subtle. Uh-huh. Now, the, uh, did you have to wear masks at that height at the time? Uh, no. no. 25,000, that was still doable? Yes. Huh. Must be quite something. I mean, what a, what an, uh, I mean, was this for you the first time you were up that high? It, that was the first, the only time I'd been that high. I'd been uh, over 20,000 feet uh, a number of times before that and then subsequently, but I haven't been that high before or since. Does anything happen to uh, to the brain of people? Do they uh, do they hallucinate or do they? Uh, what happens? Well, that's that's a very interesting question because one of the things that I was interested in looking at as a physiologist in, in those days was to look at the effect of uh, different breathing adaptation. That everybody has a different breathing adaptation to extreme altitude, okay. and all of us who've been to altitude. Uh, realize that we breathe more, whether it's down at Big Sky or whether it's uh, on Denali or whether it's on a trek in Nepal or South America. We all breathe more when we exercise because we need to bring in more oxygen because there's less oxygen in the air. Uh So one of the things I wanted to look at was that those people who breathed more and had higher oxygen uh, content in their blood would perform better and have less neuropsychological or psychometric uh, deficit. Okay. Because these levels of low oxygen that you, one has at those altitudes are the levels of oxygen that certainly we know at lower altitudes can impair the brain. Right. So uh, we did in fact find that when we were retested right after the expedition in Kathmandu, okay. we didn't do as well. Okay. In other words, you do take some hits to the brain huh. at, at those altitudes because of the extremely low oxygen. More like a memory, like short-term memory, long-term memory, both? Well, there's a whole battery of psychometric tests that we did. And I'm not a psychologist, so I didn't put these batteries of tests together. But they they do test things like 
uh, calculations, short-term, long-term memory, memory, word recall, things like that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so what we found was that uh, uh, we, we did less well after returning, and we repeated that those same battery of tests in a high-altitude chamber study in, uh, as part of the Army Research Institute outside of Boston about four or five years after that expedition. And we took a, a, almost, let's see, eight, eight medical students from sea level to the summit of Everest over 40 days in a chamber hmm. and did similar tests to what we had done in the field as well as a number of other studies that we could do in a more invasive or sophisticated way like heart catheterizations and muscle biopsies and so forth. So in a chamber you you, uh, you you imitate going up a mountain? Yes. Oh, wow. So we did that. But what we found there, too, was the, the same findings in terms of uh, central nervous system deficits. And so that was f fairly big news and uh, was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in the late 1980s. And it uh, surprised a lot of people, but knowing how low one's oxygen gets, it, it wasn't that surprising. Do you get headaches at that altitude? Is that something that happens? Or do you find out when you communicate with each other that the conversation changes? Or can you give me an example? Well, I think one of the things, living at 21,000 feet or higher, yeah. as we did during those six weeks, you certainly lose energy okay. and spontaneity of activity, and you have to keep pushing yourself. And in terms of our goals of climbing and doing science, every day just had to sort of push ourselves. Mm -hmm. And uh, But it, realizing what a wonderful opportunity it was and how lucky I was to be there, it, it was fabulous. But in terms of other things that can go wrong, headaches certainly occurred to a lot of people when they get acute mountain sickness, which okay. is very common. Yeah, but it's something even, you wrote about. Yes. yes. I mean, even at Big Sky, if people come from very low altitude and go skiing at Big Sky, or if they go to Colorado to go skiing, which is nine to 10,000 feet, people get acute mountain sickness, and headache is one of the, the yeah. primary yeah. manifestations. Huh. That's really something. As far as, as, far as food is concerned, um, um, does, does the whole group get together beforehand and say, what are we going to bring? And I'm sure you do, but I mean, are we talking here about months earlier? You know who you're going with. And then do you actually have meetings? You come together, or is a lot of it done by phone? Uh, do, do you know these people's personality when you go up the mountain that you can trust each other and all that mm -hmm. stuff? Well, the last question, yes. I mean, there's that fellowship of the rope, whether it's a research expedition or any climbing endeavor. I think it's a very special bond. You mm. just don't go out with anybody. Mm -hmm. So this group was a wonderful group. We all knew each other ahead of time. In terms of the food, it's actually a, a funny story. For an expedition of 20 people for three months, one month is hiking in through Nepal, because we walked in in those days. We didn't fly in or right. take any transportation. You we, started from Bronze We did it the old way. Much. We went yeah. from Kathmandu and walked in, which was a wonderful experience. Yeah. But getting food is always a, a, a bit of a problem because you can't please everybody. Correct. John West called me one day prior to the expedition the year before and said, how would you like to do the food? Oh, a thankless task to be yes, sure. <laughs> so, yes. but I knew a little bit. A couple of one person was uh, a vegetarian, the other there were a couple who were junk food junkies, uh, whatever different uh, uh, likes everybody had. But so I, I decided he gave me a budget to go buy food, uh -huh. and another fellow 
who was from Vancouver. I was in Seattle at that time, but another fellow from Vancouver, BC, who was one of the climbers, and I were in charge of the food. So we decided we would get the best food we could get, not pay a penny, and see if we could get donations, which in those days, since not many people went to Everest, it was not hard to do. So we went in grocery stores, walked up and down the aisles, took down addresses of food companies, and including caviar, and mm. wrote the companies. They, <laughs> almost everybody replied back, this sounds like a great endeavor. We will send you food. So we had a whole spectrum of food, in addition, of course, to buying food on the way in, uh, fresh produce in the Nepal countryside. Mm -hmm. So we had that as well. But yeah. uh, it was, I figured I couldn't please everybody, but I could please myself. I see. <laughs> <laughs> so I got food I liked. <laughs> That's good. And we were lucky. It turned out, turned out well. <laughs> Now, talking about um, uh, pulmonary health, we're talking obviously about the lungs. And um, what are some of the things that you uh, that you discovered, if we can still talk about this, what were some of the things that you discovered that were maybe shocking to you? Hmm. Something that you said, you know, whoa, didn't think about this one. Well, I think one of the main questions that John West and Jim Millage and uh, Dr. Lahiri had was in this when they were germinating these questions, uh, we're talking about the mid-1970s. Yeah. And Everest had not been climbed without supplemental oxygen at that time. Okay. It was like the four-minute mile that Sir Roger Bannister did in 1954. Mm -hmm. It was finally done. Mm -hmm. And then after that, of course, more people did it. And But anyway, no one had really climbed Everest without supplemental oxygen. So if you looked at the data that they had generated in 1960 and 61, up to 24,000 feet, if you extrapolated from those data, it looked as if on the summit of Everest, you couldn't do anything physically. Okay. Because what you look at is oxygen consumption, okay. which is the measurement of our energy output mm -hmm. or our utilization of oxygen to produce energy. Yeah. So right now you and I are sitting here at rest, not producing much energy, but we're consuming oxygen. Right. If I took you to the laboratory up at the hospital and put you on the treadmill or cycle ergometer and beat you up until you fell off, you would consume much more oxygen, like yes. any athlete mm -hmm. or any patient, as much as they can, and then there's a maximum. Correct. So th those data from 1661, as I mentioned, suggested that humans could not do anything on the summit of Mount Everest. So one of the things we found, though, when we looked at maximum oxygen consumption, which we did tests on all of ourselves at sea level, and we were young and very, very fit and had very high oxygen consumptions, mm -hmm. uh, it's sort of comparable to Tour de France type of wow. athletes, mm -hmm. but that the higher you go, of course, the less work you can do. Yes. But we did find when we simulated 29,000 feet maximum exercise, which we did at 21,000 feet oh. by breathing even lower oxygen. Okay. That was our main laboratory on, on Everest. That we could still do about 20% of our sea level maximum exercise capacity, wow. which isn't a lot, but it means that, yes. It's better than nothing. It's better than nothing, and yes, humans probably can walk to the summit of Everest. So as it turned out, uh, a year before we went in 1981, Reinhold Messner, and then a couple years before that, Messner and, and Peter Hobler did indeed climb Everest without supplemental oxygen. Mm -hmm. And then since then, many 
many climbers have, but not everybody can do that because yeah. it's a pretty high limit. Uh-huh. So as far as your, your exercise regimen that you had to do before you were going up, um, who came up with that idea? And, and what, what, what were some of the exercises that you did? Was it running and biking and was it really climbing? Was it uh, uh, exercise? Was it, were there really specific exercises or was it just getting the oxygen? Well, we were the, the team of 20 of us were from all over the country and one from England and one from Vancouver. So most of us did not live in the mountains, although in Seattle I was very close to the mountains. Yeah. And I think probably the best preparation for climbing in the Himalayas is to climb. Mm-hmm. And we all, though, couldn't do that. Mm-hmm. A couple of people from Colorado, so they could be near the mountains there. Yeah. But mostly it was just aerobic conditioning. And I did a lot of running in those days, a lot of bicycling which translates both of those fairly well to climbing. And then, of course, climbed in the Cascades in Washington. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you still, you miss it? You miss climbing? Well, I, the last four or five years down in San Diego, when I thought I'd be able to get up to Yosemite and do climbing, the Sierra were really too far, and my wife and I were both too busy as physicians to, to get up and do much climbing. So one of the reasons we're here is to be back in the Northwest in our beloved mountains. So. Yeah. Uh, and all my uh, my three older sons are outstanding mountaineers, and they'll, they keep Dad going. <laughs> what a great way to do that. No, well, we have we have a lot to talk about uh, today. Uh, we're going to talk about some of the disorders that we call the lung disorders, uh, so that you can give us an explanation. What are some of these issues? Uh, we want to talk about ha- high altitude and what it is, and also for people, who, uh, many people over here enjoy exercising at higher altitude. So you can give us some information, some feedback on that, and uh, some of the research that you have done. So we're very happy that you're in town, that you're here to stay, that you're helping, that you uh, you're going to be available for people who need help on their on the lung health. So folks, uh, stay tuned. This is Gesundheit with Jacobus. Dr. Robert Shaney is with us today in the studio talking about pulmonary health. Uh, he's a critical care specialist, uh, moved to the Bozeman area. His specialty is high altitude uh, lung health. And so coming to this area, of course, uh, is very helpful because we have so much skiing going on over here, people changing uh, uh, altitude all the time. And I know Chuck over here in the studio is a big time skier and uh, Chuck uh, goes high and low, but that is not just with skiing, Chuck, right, isn't it? Uh, I mean, I just want to make that very clear. That is very correct, yes. You've been high even if you weren't on the mountains. That's right. Higher <laughs> <laughs> and a hippie in a helicopter. <laughs> <laughs> That's a new one. I never heard that one before. You ever any experience, like, uh, going skiing? You, you've been skiing so much. Um, you ex- make uh, some of the things that Dr. Shaney is talking about. You see that indeed with skiing that things change in your head. You get lightheaded, or when you go up really high, or not? Uh, yeah, especially if you haven't been in the mountains for a while, and if you go oh. to altitude, um, you can experience headaches, cramps, little disorientation. Uh, Is that lactic acid, Doctor Shaney? Is that uh, lactic acid uh, buildup or not? When you do exercise and you lose your oxygen at a high elevation, it's just cramping. The cramping, I'm not sure other than the fact that sometimes uh, the hyperventilation will cause shifts in calcium that will make your muscles cramp. But certainly the other things that Chuck described are from lack of oxygen. Okay. And uh, the body's 
the body needs time to adapt to low oxygen right. because the air is thinner the higher you go. The percentage of oxygen in our atmosphere from sea level to the stratosphere is 21%. And that's been part of the Earth's atmosphere for maybe 3 billion years. People have calculated that. Mm. But uh, the difference is that the density of the air, air, is, air, is, air weighs something. Yeah. And at sea level, it's measured in barometric pressure uh, of, say, 760 millimeters of mercury. Okay. And this was discovered by European scientists back in the 17, 16 and 1700s, mm-hmm. that air actually had weight. But is, if you come to Bozeman, at about 5,000 feet, the barometric pressure is less, yeah. maybe 660. Okay. And it's, it's pretty much linear from sea level to the summit of Mount Everest. Summit of Mount Everest, for instance, which we were talking about earlier, mm-hmm. the barometric Barometric pressure is about 250 wow. millimeters of mercury. So you have one-third of the amount of oxygen. So in order to get enough uh, oxygen molecules into the lungs, into the blood, into the muscles and the brain and so forth, since the air is very thin, very thin. you need to breathe proportionally that much more. Okay, so you have a little short, bre- short breathing going on. Well, just more breathing, just Deeper, in fact, Can deeper. You, you actually go. Well, you, yes, when you exercise, and this so is, it's easier uh, than to inhale deep and exhale when you're up high. Well, it is, except you have to do a lot more of it. Okay. See, the air is less dense, so that moving that air through the airways is easier. Mm-hmm. But the amount of air that you need to move, uh, that work, the work of breathing, which uh, it outstrips. Mm-hmm the lower density in the gas. Right. So uh, I, li- I liken it to, I mean, some of our high altitude research really translates very directly into patients with lung disease. Okay. In other words, the work of breathing at 14,000 feet, 20,000 feet or higher is very high. The work of breathing for a patient with emphysema, yeah. where there is much more resistance in the airways, in other words, rather than breathing through a garden hose, Patients with asthma and emphysema are breathing through something much smaller, like say a straw. A drinking straw. Mm-hmm. And so, in order to move that much air, it takes a lot of work. Yeah. So, some of the the work we've done looking at the muscles of breathing, the diaphragm and the intercostal muscles, translates directly into patients with emphysema who mm. who have uh, a, a great deal of difficulty just moving air across their airways. Hmm. Now, uh, Chuck, and I don't know if you've ever done that, but uh, there are people who make almost a sport out of skiing a lot of vertical feet in one day. Like they, they go up and down, up and down. They try to get as many vertical feet in. Oh, that's right. They have a uh, thing at Ridge of Ball, the king and queen of the ridge. And uh, last year, I believe the winners made 24, 24 trips to the ridge in one day. Wow. 24 and that's, trips. Uh, that's a... Uh, that's in it. <laughs> 24 trips in one day. Wow, that is, uh, that's unbelievable because the lift only goes up so high, the rest you have to climb. Right. And um, since the first year I've, I've lived here, I was never, I never really enjoyed that height. I'll do it, <laughs> but I've never really enjoyed it. So, but then they would ski all the way down to the bottom and then go back up again? Well, for the king and queen, they just ski back down to the top of the bridger lift. Okay. So they would be doing like 500 vertical at a pop. Now, as far as physiology is concerned, Dr. Shinny, um, what does that do to the body? 
you should see some of those people that run literally run up the ridge. Really, even yeah. after several times. Oh yeah. Well, then you got guys like Scott Creel that can do uh, the back or the Bridger Ridge run in less than three hours. It's twenty some odd miles in less than three hours. That's just motor. Yeah. 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 Well, I think all of those people, Chuck, that you're talking about are are great aerobic athletes. Yes. And by aerobic athletes, they have capabilities of very high oxygen consumptions, uh, endurance, and, of course, they train and live uh, doing those things so that the altitude to them is a bit relative. I, mean, I assume most of them live here or a little bit higher, so they have a little bit of preliminary adaptation. Mm -hmm. And then they spend as much time, again, I imagine, as they can higher up, nine and 10,000 feet, and those altitudes, certainly, if you lived at sea level and came to those altitudes to try to exercise vigorously, mm -hmm. uh, you just can't do it. And there have been a lot of studies starting back in the 60s. And, of course, the interest in all this started during the Mexico City Olympics oh. in 1968, Eight. which was yeah. at about 7,200 feet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it became apparent that people coming from low altitude to Mexico City couldn't perform quite as well if they didn't have time to acclimatize or do some training at altitude. Mm. And the track and field team for the United States, for instance, trained at Lake Tahoe, which six to 7,000 feet. So they had a little bit of adaptation. Is that why Bob Beeman jumped as far as he did? Well, that's part of it. Yeah. Remember in 1968, Bob Beeman jumped 29 feet, two yeah. inches, I think. Yeah. Uh, Lee Evans set a world record in the 400 meters, which stood for 20 years. Jeez. And... Tommy Smith ran the 200 faster than it had ever been run at that time. And part of that for short uh, distance events, say 800 meters and shorter, the decreased density of the air actually makes a, a beneficial difference. I see. But for events greater than two minutes, the times were slower. Oh, okay. okay. And the, the other famous race of that Olympics, of course, was Jim Ryan and Kip Kano. Ryan being one of the greatest. Was that the 10K? It was a 1500. 1500, okay. Yeah, that was, uh, Ryan was one of the great athletes of his era, running the middle distances, and he was a, a favorite. But he was beaten by a Kenyan, mm -hmm. Kip Kano. Mm -hmm. And people said, oh, it, it must be the altitude where Kano lives in Kenya at about 7,000 feet. So everybody started training at altitude, which is a whole other topic maybe we can get into later. Yeah. They're, they're, it's not all benefit. But my contention was that the, the Kenyan children run to school 10 miles every yeah, day. Yeah, don't have a bus. And we ride in a bus. <laughs> so, I mean, it, it, and yeah. it, there are a lot of genetic things as well. But yes. um, So anyway, the, the point is that the folks who live here at 5,000 feet and play in the mountains and train in the mountains uh, are great athletes who can run up and down Bridger Bowl. That is amazing, yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow, folks, 522-TALK, 522-8255. If you have a question about pulmonary health, uh, things about your lungs, uh, Dr. Robert Shaney is here to answer your questions. If you have, you're dealing with a certain disorder such as asthma, allergies, bronchitis, emphysema, um, pulmonary fibrosis, what my mom is uh, suffering from, uh, by all means, call 522-8255 is that number, and then we'll, uh, we'll address it accordingly. Um, Dr. Shaney, what is high altitude? Well, as I mentioned uh, a little bit earlier, but it, high altitude is where the air is less dense than it is at sea level. And as uh, a 
a, a clinician or a physiologist, we like to categorize altitude into uh, you know, mild high altitude, moderate high altitude, and extreme high altitude. The altitudes of say five to 10 or 12,000 feet are moderate altitudes, altitudes where many people who live at low altitude go to train or recreate or have fun. And then above there, we get into sort of the intermediate between moderate and extreme altitude, maybe 13,000 feet to, say, 20,000 feet, and then above 20,000 feet being extreme altitude. And it's interesting that the terrestrial limit as well as the physiologic limit for humans happens to be probably Everest, meaning it's 29,000 feet. And as I mentioned, the air is one-third the density there, one third uh, the availability of oxygen as it, as it is at sea level. So oh. that's the way we define high altitude. And we look at high altitude also in terms of where people can live and thrive. Mm-hmm. And we look at populations in Tibet, Ethiopia, South America, 12 to 14 to 15,000 feet where people live. Higher altitudes where uh, Tibetan yak herders may go to uh, take their yaks up to, say, 19,000 feet in the summer, but realizing, too, that humans really can't live for long periods of time mm-hmm. above, say, 17,000 feet. Yeah, yeah, and that's yeah. been shown historically in South America in the mines, where there, uh, there was a, uh, a mine called Aconquilcha, which is still existed in northern Chile, where we did some research years ago. And uh, when they built that mine, they moved the people from the village up to 19,500 feet. And they couldn't reproduce, they couldn't thrive, so they brought the people back down to their villages of 14,000 feet, and the miners commute every day Oh wow! to 19,000 feet. So these are altitudes, and as I said earlier, humans are probably tropical creatures. Mm-hmm. And if you look at human evolution and history of our species, probably beginning in East Africa, mm-hmm. as all the paleontologists think, happen, Mm -hmm. and then migrating north into Europe, and then around through Ethiopia. Ethiopia has a high altitude plateau, Mm -hmm. some people staying there, the Tibetan plateau, Himalayan plateau, uh, people staying there, and then up into north and down into South America. And in South America, the high altitude natives, or the South American humans have probably been there maybe 14,000 years, which really is not very long in terms of Mm -hmm. evolutionary adaptation. Mm -hmm. And in the Himalaya, no one knows for sure, but maybe 75, maybe even 100,000. There's a lot of debate about that. Hmm. And in Ethiopia, maybe even longer. And huh. Ethiopians, which have not been studied very well at all yet for political reasons and uh, difficulty in getting into Ethiopia, yeah, yeah. but the Ethiopians probably are even better adapted than the Tibetans. The, high alti- the, the Tibetan natives are exquisitely adapted to high altitude, and wow. I think the Ethiopians might be a little bit better. Huh. Wow, it's just, uh, you know, just thinking about it, it's just fascinating. At 19,000, is it always cold? Is it always, uh, I mean, what if the sun shines? Is it nice? Is it comfortable T-shirt weather, or is it really cold? Well, when we were in uh, northern Chile, and also I've done some work in Peru, in the Andes there, because it, those areas are somewhat equatorial, it's, it can be very cold, but it, it many times isn't. Mm. So that from a weather standpoint, these altitudes... Uh, are livable. Okay. From a high altitude standpoint, an oxygen standpoint, not long, really. They aren't. Mm-hmm. But uh, it, for instance, in the Himalaya, where you're starting to get, you're still somewhat equatorial, but you're getting away from 
Uh, there, the weather at 19,000 feet can be pretty good, but it's still a little bit cold. Of course, on, in Alaska, on Denali, where we did some work uh, years ago, uh, you're at 65 degrees north latitude, and it's cold. Yes. Almost all the time. Did you climb in the winter or in the summer? Uh, in uh, on Everest, Everest. We were there in the fall of 1981, so okay. fall time. Yeah. Wow. So... Um, we talk well let's let's talk about oxygen why do we need oxygen well oxygen as i said in terms of our earth has at some periods of time been higher mm-hmm. it's been as high as 30 percent it's thought by the uh, the people who study those things whereas for the last couple billion years it's it's been as i mentioned about 21 percent of the atmosphere and Single cellular organisms and then multicellular organisms, mammals, reptiles, and so forth, eventually evolved to need oxygen. Mm. And oxygen is really the substrate that is burned in the mitochondria, which are the little subcellular parts of our muscles. Mm -hmm. Yeah, where they generate Mm -hmm. energy. So oxygen, which is available in the air, is brought into the lungs. The blood that flows through the lungs picks up that oxygen, carries it to the muscle, the brain, the gut, the kidneys, and so forth, and whatever those tissues need at the time, they extract the oxygen from the blood, give back what's left over, and it, that's, then that goes back to the lungs, and mm-hmm. you blow off carbon dioxide, which is the, uh, the byproduct of oxidative metabolism, okay. and that's the cycle. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, oxygen is is critical to uh, cellular function and it's interesting though that cells can function pretty well with very low uh, concentrations of oxygen but one thing that cells can't do very well with is lack of blood flow with the oxygen to the to the cells okay so that when we have patients who are suffering from lung or heart disease live at a little bit of altitude, for instance, so their oxygen level is even lower. Mm-hmm. And that's very relevant even to Bozeman, mm-hmm. which is not that high, mm-hmm. but for people who are on the limit mm-hmm. of heart and lung disease, the cell, uh, the cells suffer, mm. or can suffer, mm-hmm. but the cells suffer much worse if the blood doesn't flow there. Okay. So it's yes. important to pump that blood mm-hmm. with the oxygen, whether it's high or low, to the cells, so the cells can metabolize it. Mm. Interesting, on an embryonic level, babies don't really, they live, they breathe, but the lungs are not really active, right? Not at all. So how does this work? Well, in, uh, during gestation, blood flow, because of the flow through the heart, is uh, directed away from the lungs because the lung, there's no air, obviously. Correct. And so the lungs are dormant so to speak the blood flows away from the lungs but the oxygen in the baby's blood comes of course from the mother Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and then that blood uh, which just uh, circumvents the the lungs Mm -hmm. goes down into the the left side of the heart and then that pumps the blood into the body and the blood has the oxygen the baby extracts it and then it goes through that cycle so the lungs just lie dormant during uh, yeah. gestation fascinating isn't it i mean what's because we, you have an organ that is developing to do something phenomenal and it's not really functioning what's even more interesting to me is the fact that you're right during gestation 
nine months, the lung is developing but isn't used, and then suddenly it's used. It has to work just like that. It has to work just like that. And (laughs) I'm amazed. I'm amazed that it actually happens, and we've evolved to allow that to happen. Yeah, yeah. So, Jeez, amazing. Um, Now, uh, I was going through uh, one of the books that you wrote, uh, that you co-wrote with uh, John West, is a book that came out, High Altitude Medicine and Physiology. And um, in this book, amongst other things, I understand this is like a phenomenal piece of work uh, from what from one of the reviews that I read. It's, it's like this was a long time coming. And, and um, uh, it's, not an, it's not a cheap book. And it is like, a, what is it, like about $145 or something. But how many pages is it? Um, I think it's like 12,000 or something. No, no, no. <laughs> it's one, one for every foot of the Himalayan. <laughs> yeah, I think it's, I forget, it's probably about 500 pages, but it, it covers, it's pretty readable. And a, a lot of people, that's what have, it says. Yes. A lot of people have bought it. it. It covers not only the science end of high altitude, it covers the clinical part. It covers the human evolutionary part at high altitude. Yeah. It covers altitude illnesses that many low altitude people incur, including those folks coming to ski at Big Sky or yeah, even yeah, Bridger, yeah. for instance. Mm-hmm. It, it covers exercise performance. It co- covers training and so forth. So it's phenomenal, yeah. Is it available in Bozeman? I know Paul Barnes & Noble, I think, uh, sells it. Or I, You know, I don't know. I, in fact, Amazon. Uh, Amazon, can you can get, get it yeah. right there. Yeah, it's called High Altitude Medicine and Physiology, and it uh, the last edition came out on June 14 of 2007. Yes. And um, but one of the things that it talks about, one thing that you just mentioned, is the uh, the ill effects that people can get at high altitude, and some of the disorders like acute mountain sickness. And and uh, one of the articles that I read was uh, by uh, a colleague of yours, Jean Paul Richelet. Richelet, mm-hmm. how do you say it? Richelet. Richelet. And um, I don't know exactly, ACZ is the medicine, medication that they use. Is, uh, how do you say it? Acetazolamide? Acetazolamide or Diamox. Okay. But apparently, uh, reading that, it seems to be a very cheap medicine. But uh, they tested it at 250 milligram and 750 milligram. How much did people need to take in order to actually breathe better? Is this something that uh, that you took with you on some of your expeditions and research just to see what what effect it was and then you started writing about it as well? Yes, uh, acetazolamide or Diamox has been used for a number of years to prevent altitude illness. Mm-hmm. As you mentioned, it's a very available drug. It, it was originally uh, developed uh, for two things. One is a diuretic. Mm. It's, it's a mild diuretic. It's mm-hmm. not uh, potent like a lot of the new uh, newer diuretics. Uh, but also for the treatment of glaucoma, oh, and that some physiology in the eye. It, uh-huh. But it, it it inhibits an enzyme called carbonic anhydrase, which is a very uh, it's an enzyme that is throughout all of our body that helps to transport carbon dioxide from the cells to the to the lung. Mm-hmm. And acetazolamide, it, it's, several of its effects probably mimic normal human adaptation to high altitude, except it does it quickly. I see. So that for going to Tibet to go trekking or Nepal or South America or to go skiing, uh, say if you live at sea level and want to go to Colorado at 9,500 or 10,000 feet, it's a very helpful drug uh, to minimize or prevent 
uh, acute mountain sickness, which is very, very common. But they also, I think in one of the articles I read, it said you don't, want to, you don't need higher dosages per se because it actually won't have the effect. You, right. It's better to do like 250 milligram three times a day than doing 750 several times a day. Well, it's even lower doses have been even shown. Lower doses, yeah. yeah, there are some side effects which are not very harmful, but disconcerting. Some people, it upsets their stomach a bit. But the, the dose that's used most commonly now is 125 twice a day. That's it, huh? Milligrams. And it it uh, helps sleep, it helps performance, and it minimizes altitude illness, which, wow. which we can talk about we'll later. We'll talk about when we come yeah. back. Folks, a very powerful program today with Dr. Robert Shaney. Stay tuned, please. We have two more hours talking about lung health when we come back. I know you love doing what you're doing, but at the same time, a big thank you to you for doing that research because... I'm sure that when you do, when you become a researcher, that you don't always have the chance to really enjoy going up there because you have to observe things. You look from look through different eyes, right? You you cannot just go, hey, let's go fishing. I mean, you're going to have to say, I'm watching those guys uh, fish or hike or whatever. Well, I think that's true, but I feel extremely lucky to have been able to combine something I was very passionate about or am very passionate about. That's the mountains climbing or just traveling or trekking or whatever and my profession and that was not planned at all i i got into high altitude uh, i got into climbing first of all by growing up in ohio hmm. where there are where they're so <laughs> yeah. climbing but you my climbed the roof of your house right but my parents made the mistake of subscribing to national geographic magazine and as a child growing up there are a lot of things that are exciting in national geographic but one of which was mountains and uh, the mountains that I saw as a child were beautiful, the Blue Ridge Mountains, the Smoky Mountains, as we would take family trips. But I always wanted to see the big icy mm-hmm. mountains of the world. And mm-hmm. so after I graduated from college, I worked on a freighter with a classmate of mine uh, from college. And when the freighter got to Europe, we jumped the freighter and went to the Alps. Yes, and that must have been something. Th- well, that was just fabulous. I. I didn't know how to climb, and we hiked around. That's all I did then. But I knew that seeing those mountains, that somehow mountains had to be a part of my life. So then when I came back to uh, the States at the end of that summer to go to medical school, I was in New York City. But there's a lot of good climbing in New England. Mm -hmm, So mm -hmm. I learned a lot of technical rock and ice climbing in New England. And then when it came time for me to further my training in residency, I wanted to come west. Mm -hmm. And so... That began my career and my training and then my career at the University of Washington and mm-hmm. located in beautiful mountains mm-hmm. of the Cascades. And, mm-hmm. and I used to come to Bozeman since the mid-70s to go oh. ice climbing or, or skiing or visiting friends and so forth. So coming here this last year, is, uh, I wasn't coming to new territory. It was no. a place I'd also loved. And, and my wife and I both love the Northwest, and the opportunity to come here was, was a wonderful one. So mm-hmm. we're here. Let's uh, talk about some of the issues that come up, uh, as we talked about in the end of the last hour, uh, some of the ill effects people can have on high altitude. Uh, One of them is acute mountain sickness. Yes, I think, um, as we alluded to in the the first hour, the adaptation to low oxygen is a process that the body has a lot of resourcefulness and resiliency to do. And that's one of the things we've studied for a long, we and many, many others for a long time. And it pertains not only to people going to high altitude or living at high altitude, but it pertains to 
patients mm -hmm. with heart and lung disease who have low oxygen levels. Those adaptations, although patients who are fairly sick don't have the resourcefulness, they too have to adapt. So um, learning those processes has been exciting and fun. Mm -hmm. Now, looking at the downsides of things that can happen for lowlanders going to high altitude, and that may mean lowlanders living close to sea level who come to Montana to go skiing yeah. or hiking or climbing in the summers because coming from sea level to seven or 8,000 feet down near mm -hmm. Big Sky or Lone Mountain is high enough to develop acute mountain sickness, which is a very common, uh, usually brief and self-limited adaptation or maladaptation to, to high altitude. And one year I did a sabbatical in Colorado in Summit County, which is at about 9,500 to 10,000 feet. And we looked at thousands of people who came to an area that's very popular to go to. Yeah. And many of them come from low altitude. And about one of the studies we did there, uh, we just looked at the prevalence of acute mountain sickness uh, for people recreating in Colorado, and it's almost 25%. Wow. And acute mountain sickness, uh, the symptoms are very common. Headache almost always has to be one mm -hmm. of them. Loss of appetite, loss of energy, uh, just feeling poorly. And those symptoms may come on within the first 8 to 24 or 36 hours mm -hmm. when people go to high altitude. And if they s stay put and rest and relax for a day or two, it the, those symptoms usually go away. So even without doing any exercise, if you just come to that altitude and say, you know, I'm going to first couple of days, I'm going to take it easy, walk around a little bit, and that already will help? Absolutely. Okay. In fact, it's been shown that if one goes to high altitude, eight to 10,000 feet acutely, and exercises a lot, there's a higher prevalence of acute mountain sickness. So it is better to go. And one exercises a lot? Yeah. Also, if you yeah. would. If in the first 48 hours, if, if one goes and just starts running up and down the mountain, yes. uh, they're more predisposed to altitude illness. So uh, if, you, if one can go to high altitude to go trekking or skiing or climbing or whatever and stage that ascent, mm -hmm. then they are much less likely to get acute mountain sickness. Mm -hmm. But, of course, it's very difficult when you've saved up all your money to go for a two-week trek in Nepal to not go to high altitude right away, and so people go and they get sick, or even to Colorado to go skiing, for instance. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So acute mountain sickness is sort of the first much more common form of altitude maladaptation. Right. And then as, as one gets a little bit higher, things like high altitude pulmonary edema and cerebral edema are much more severe and can be fatal. Wow. And that is, what can you do about them? Well, I think the first thing that's most important is to understand and recognize symptoms. Mm -hmm. For instance, most of the time, high-altitude pulmonary and cerebral edema are uh, preceded by acute mountain sickness. In other words, the more mild, self-limited form of altitude illness. So if, if you go to 10,000 feet to go skiing or trekking at 11 or 10,000 or 12,000 feet and you get acute mountain sickness, uh, the best thing to do is just relax, uh, recover from it, which usually occurs in a couple of days at the most, yeah. and then you can go higher because your body is undergoing 
adaptation to the low oxygen. Uh Whether it's the breathing response, the the blood response, the cellular response, all of those things are going on, Mm -hmm. which are beneficial, Mm -hmm. but they take time. And they're different in everybody. And I think one one thing I've learned about high altitude, uh, or, or from high altitude research is the fact that everybody's a little bit different. Okay. And those lessons translate to practicing medicine too, because mm-hmm. every patient with asthma isn't the same. Okay. Or every patient with emphysema isn't the same. So you have to understand the physiology of each of your patients uh-huh. or of each of your athletes going to high altitude mm-hmm. or of each of your recreators who are going to have fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, you know, when, when, I, when I visualize that then, I assume that when you move from zero to 10,000 feet, that will have a certain effect, but it will probably be accelerated two or three times if you go from ten to twenty thousand. Wouldn't that be the case? I mean, it doesn't yes. seem like it. It it uh, it comes quicker than you know. The higher you go, the faster these acute mountain sickness uh, this or of uh, symptoms will will appear. Right. So that's why when you climb, you you climb in stages and stay for a few days at a camp and then move on to the next one. Exactly. So I people th- skiing over here, you know, going to hell. Al- pretty high up and then come back down high up and back down um you really have to work your way up for that that's right that's important i think that some people can get away with it and go to those altitudes nine and ten thousand feet if they live at sea level and want to go skiing and sometimes they just feel like they have a little bit of a hangover Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. the first day or so but they may do quite well other people can really get clobbered yeah, yeah. And I saw that in Colorado quite a bit because so many people came there so quickly. People would fly from Chicago or Los Angeles and come to uh, Summit County, and they would be down at Breckenridge, for instance, and they'd leave in the morning. By the afternoon, they'd be up at 12,000 feet skiing. Mm-hmm. And I saw a couple of cases uh, of high-altitude pulmonary edema on the first day. And even in Colorado, we saw high-altitude pulmonary edema, particularly during the ski season, maybe one case a day. Of course, there are a Mm -hmm. lot of people there, but uh, people die from that. Mm -hmm. So I think an answer to one of your earlier questions is recognize the symptoms and be smart, take your time, enjoy the scenery, let your body do its thing, Mm -hmm. and then enjoy your your time. Mm -hmm. 522-TALK, 522-8255. Folks, by any any means, if you like to call uh, Dr. Robert Cheney right here on the program with a question about your lung health, uh, this is a great time to do it, great program to do it, because he can answer all kinds of questions. We are talking about his track to the to the Himalayas, Mount Everest, and uh, some of the other work that he has done and the books that he's written about it. But uh, he is first and foremost, he is a medical doctor who is a lung specialist. So if you have a question about your lungs, uh, make it count. Either email us at info at gwjradio.com, Gesundheit with Jacobus Radio, or call us at 522-TALK. Um, asthma. Let's talk about some of the disorders that many people know, because not everybody who listens to this program has been up high, except Chuck. And uh, But that was a whole lot of topic, which we'll talk about at some point, Chuck, and I'm sure you'll be sitting in the hot seat. But uh, <laughs> anyway, what we uh, let's talk about asthma. What you just mentioned a few minutes ago, not everybody's asthma symptoms are the same, and not asthma for one person is different than asthma for another. What is asthma? Asthma is an inflammatory process. In other words, a process where the lungs are irritated 
And from that irritation, the airways, the lining cells of the airways uh, become inflamed and edematous, which then triggers a further response from the smooth muscles that surround the airways so, so that they constrict. Okay. The bottom line is that those airways, which normally can accommodate huge volumes of air and flow of air, are limited. Mm-hmm. And the analogy we used earlier was breathing through a garden hose versus a drinking straw. Yeah. So that uh, people with asthma have these usually intermittent or periodic inflammatory responses. Now, some people may have very mild asthma so that uh, they may, for unknown reasons or for known reasons, particularly some allergies, uh, come in contact with those inhaled irritants. Mm-hmm. The airways react. They have a mild case of asthma for a couple of days and they go away and maybe weeks or months before it happens again. Mm-hmm. At the other end of the spectrum are people with persistent severe asthma who always have airway inflammation, airway narrowing, and difficulty in breathing. Yeah. And they are that that person, unlike the first group who may require just some inhalers, uh, you know, once or twice a month, the people with severe asthma are usually on medications uh, all the time. And also, as a, as a pulmonary physician, it's important to try to understand what triggers a patient's asthma. Mm-hmm. As I say, sometimes we never really know. I see. But, but often, if you take a careful history and learn in the lifestyle of the exposures patients have, uh, you, you might be able to help change their lifestyle or, or, uh, or diet or whatever so that they don't have these allergic responses. Um, athletes, young, young people, often have adolescent form of asthma mm-hmm. that they grow out of. They say, don't worry about it, you'll grow out of it. Um, that can be because of stress. We hear about stress, stress-induced asthma, exercise-induced asthma, which doesn't have to be the same, I understand. And um, it could also be that maybe there is something in, in, in their environment. It could be a mold. It could be some kind of an allergy that creates an asthmatic condition. Um, in my case, for example, I'm allergic to cats and dogs. If I uh, touch the cat that we have, then I have to wash my hands. If I touch a dog, i got to wash my hands. Because if I touch my face, my eyes get thick and I get shortness of breath. Um, though I already mentioned several kinds. I mentioned here allergies to, an- to animals, uh, stress-induced, exercise-induced. But my first question to you on, on this topic is, how come that young people get it and grow out of it? Well, it's a, a good question. And I think that there are some pulmonary physiologists and clinicians who think that uh, if, if you truly have allergic asthma as a child, you never really get over it. Okay. Now, that doesn't mean that it clinically would, might not go away. And I've had many patients, uh, young patients who uh, get into their 20s or 30s and, and older and, and never have an occurrence again. So we, we say they've grown out of it, but we do know that they are still susceptible. Okay. But your description of yourself is great. I mean, I had patients or have patients who are allergic to cats, and yet their cat sleeps on their pillow with them. Yes. I mean, I, and I had you know, a couple of patients I'm thinking of at the University of Washington 
uh, both of them young women who had pretty bad asthma, and mm. they were treating it every day. Okay. And they were shown to be allergic to cats, and their cats slept on their pillow. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> So yeah. you want to take a two-by-four and hit them over the head. Yes, say, Listen, exactly. You're going to – because – the thinking now is that if asthma persists, whether it's mild or severe, that over time, with all of the inflammation that occurs, scarring can occur in those airways. Okay. It's called remodeling. Okay. So that uh, th there may be some long-term effects. Whereas in the, I remember when I was in training, we thought that if you treated asthma, if it were episodic and it went away, then those people... Uh, if, if it went away during those intermittent periods, that those people wouldn't get long-term lung pathology. But now it looks like it may be mild, it may be clinically undetectable, but that there's still something going on. I actually, uh, first time I discovered that I had a cat allergy was when I was 19. Mm -hmm. Never had it before. Mm -hmm. Have you seen that before too, yeah. that it actually happens when you get older? Yes. If you don't have it as a teenager? Absolutely. That... Again, when I was in training as a resident and fellow, I, I thought that one could not get an allergy or asthma if you didn't have it as a younger person. But there are people presenting with asthma in their 50s and 60s. And I remember the first couple of patients I had, I thought they had something else because the wheezing that they had can be other things too. Okay. Um, congestive heart failure, all these things. But in working those patients up, it really was asthma coming on in their fourth or fifth decade or I later. I see, I see. So uh, I think that people at a later age, meaning 20s, 30s, and 40s and later, can come in contact with something that uh, either their system has been triggered over time, their immune system, so that then it suddenly becomes manifest as asthma, mm -hmm. or that they've always had it and have just never been exposed mm. to whatever it is that triggers their asthma. Have you ever heard that uh, asthma can be reduced by drinking enough fluids? That you uh, that sometimes it could be an histamine-induced asthma, if that exists like that. I've been told that if you feel that something is coming on, and I've tried it myself, if I feel that wheezing is coming on or uh, the cat, whatever, I touched myself or the, 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 the cat laid on the chair that, I was, uh, that I'm sitting in and I touch it and touch my face, if I actually drink two or three glasses of eight, ten ounces of water in a row, that actually within about ten minutes I start feeling better. Have you ever heard about that? Have you done well, any I, testing I've, on I've that? I've heard of that. I, don't, I really don't know whether – I'm not aware of any studies that have looked at it. But on the other hand, it's probably prudent advice <coughs> anyway just to stay reasonably hydrated. Now, whether, as you mentioned, histamine is a very important component of chemical that is uh, excreted by – the mast cells is a type of cell that lines the airways. And so that it, when it's released, it, it causes that inflammation, that narrowing of the airways. Uh, being hydrated may minimize that. Hmm. So and also for allergies, maybe. Yeah, mm -hmm. I don't know. Huh. The, now, asthma, and, and uh, when we come back, I really would like to talk with you more about uh, the differences between things such as asthma and bronchitis, emphysema. Uh, uh, pulmonary fibrosis, mm -hmm. which my mom has right now, and and they say it could actually be genetic. That is one of the things that I was reading about, that it may have a genetic component. Um, 
that we that we uh, emphasize some of that because I, and and another thing that I would like to bring up is actually sleep apnea mm-hmm. because my understanding is that uh, uh, I talk to people on a regular basis that say they have sleep apnea and they actually there is a there is a medical doctor Virginia Pasquale in in town who is a sleep doctor and my understanding is you work with her do some work with her at least and um, that could also be in lung condition. It's certainly related. Yeah, uh, certainly related. Pulmonologists, uh, along with some of the neurologists and, and other specialties, have worked hard on sleep. So, yeah, I'll be glad to talk about that All right, later. wonderful. When we come back, folks, Dr. Robert Cheney and myself will be back in just a few. So it's uh, nice to have you with us, folks. Uh, what are we still talking about? Gesundheit, yeah, it's Gesundheit with Jacobus <laughs> on Sunday mornings. I just forgot where we were. We have a couple callers who would like to get in touch. Uh, caller number one, you're uh, on the radio with Dr. Robert Cheney. What is your name and how can we help you, please? My name is Eric. Eric, good morning to you. I had a question for the doctor um, regarding whooping cough. I was wondering if he could uh, briefly touch on that and whether or not re-immunization would be important, necessary, indicated uh, for people that have, uh, you know, passed their prime? Well, it's a good question. Whooping cough, uh, the classic whooping cough, of course, is caused by a certain uh, infectious agent, and it can be severe. It can be fatal. It can affect any age group, a little bit more common in, in younger folks, which is why it uh, came around as being one of the uh, diseases that uh, physicians and science were able to immunize uh, people for, like measles and smallpox and so forth. So in answer to your question, I think uh, immunization uh, for pertussis, which is the uh, agent that causes uh, whooping cough, it lasts many, many, many years. So if you've had it, meaning the immunization, is probably unnecessary to re-immunize. Unnecessary? Is that what you said? No, probably not necessary. Not necessary. Yeah. Okay. Huh. Is there a resurgence of pertussis now compared to years ago? Or, Well, I think there has been a bit for two things. One, it's a little bit more in the news. And secondly, that resurgence may be because many parents are uh, not wanting to immunize their children Realizing there are some children who get sick from immunization, but the bottom line is thousands and thousands of children into adulthood are protected. But uh, as you may uh, know, there are a lot of uh, parents over the last 10 or 15 years who do not want to immunize their children. So what has happened is that there's been a bit of a resurgence of uh, whooping cough. Interesting. One last question, if I may. Go ahead, Eric. as you gain altitude, uh, is there a formula that uh, one can see a decline in the uh, percentage of oxygen in the air? Uh, yes, there is, and it's a fairly linear relationship. Now, there's some sea level to the summit of Mount Everest, and uh, if one looks at the percentage of oxygen available at different altitudes, uh, you can predict. For instance, at, say, 7,000 feet uh, where... Mexico City is there's it's a in the low 80 percent range of the oxygen available as there is compared uh, compared to sea level, and that doesn't, may not sound like a a large decrease, but for an athlete uh, wanting to perform at that altitude, it is for a patient. I mean, even here in 
Bozeman, where, where we're at about 5,000 feet, patients who come here with uh, severe emphysema or bad persistent asthma, that little decrease in oxygen availability is, is very, very uh, obvious. So they may not be able to do well. Uh, if you go to, say, 10,000 feet, where Leadville, Colorado is, it's, it's in the 73 or 74% of oxygen available. If you go to altitudes where people live in South America, like Morticocha or Cerro de Pasco, the availability of oxygen is about 60%. And at 18,000 feet, where we had our base camp on Everest, it's about 50%. And on the summit, it's about a third. So, yes, you can predict. You don't think we should be giving a handicap to teams that come and play up here at Bozeman? <laughs> well, that, that's actually a very interesting question. And there, in South America, for instance, there's a lot of controversy on the, the soccer teams, who yeah. uh, some, of, some of whom are living at twelve or 13,000 feet. If other teams, say from Lima or... Uh, well, Ecuador, they, they actually canceled uh, preliminary games for the World Cup. They said it wasn't fair for other countries from South America to come play in Ecuador because they're up on 12,000 feet or yes, something. Yes, that's so, exactly right. So yeah. it's hard for teams to go but to... They but they stopped that now. They say, no, we can play games over yeah, there. Yeah, it's, it's a big <laughs> controversy. It's a great question. And uh, one wonders, uh, teams coming... Well, for instance, the Denver professional Broncos. teams. Yeah, uh-huh. Uh, they're at 5,000 feet like we are here, and there is probably some advantage. Now, something we haven't talked about this morning, which we might or might not have time for, is there's certainly a downside to training at high altitude, say from 8,000 feet or above. Uh, uh, it, it's not all benefit. Mm-hmm. Okay. So well, thank you very kindly. Well, thanks, yeah, you're Eric. welcome. Great calls. We have a caller who's been waiting also for a few minutes. Uh, you're next online. What, uh, is, you're, what is your name? Ron. Hey, Ron. Good morning to you. Uh, first of all, I'd say there is a, a, a totally chicken tongue record called In the Mood somewhere. I've, I've heard one time, uh, but that's not my question. Uh, <laughs> I'm a retired truck driver, and I notice as I travel around the country that you see more people on supplemental oxygen uh, at higher altitudes like Flagstaff and Denver and even around here where we're close to 5,000 feet. Uh, where along the California coast or Corpus Christi, you don't notice it as much. And uh, I did a little private survey and asked people that I've noticed with uh, supplemental oxygen if they spent their whole life here or you know where they come from. And uh, and everyone I've talked to has come from sea level. And it might just be a coincidence, but I'm wondering if uh, if there's you know your body gets used to breathing at a certain rhythm at a certain place where you live and uh, and doesn't quite catch up with it if you move to higher altitudes. Hmm. That, too, is an excellent question, and I think that uh, your observation or your survey is, is quite valid. There are people who do, who have underlying, say, lung disease, who do perfectly fine at sea level or, or lower altitudes, but that decrease in barometric pressure, that decrease in availability of oxygen that occurs, even here at 5,000 feet, may be just enough to tip them over to the point that they don't do well. And so I think that uh, there were sort of two parts to your question. One, those people who come from low altitude don't realize that they're coming to higher altitude, whether it's here or Flagstaff is over 7,000 feet, so it's even higher, mm. <clears throat> excuse me, higher, uh, that that 
increase in altitude just tips them over. Uh, the other thing has to do with is there an advantage to living at these kinds of altitudes? And I think certainly unless you're predisposed and, and unless you're a heavy smoker with emphysema, uh, living at these altitudes, five to 7,000 feet, is probably fairly healthy. But, uh, but an underlying disease uh, sometimes can't be tolerated at these altitudes. For instance, what often isn't known is that if you fly in an airplane, that airplane is pressurized to 8,000 feet approximately. Okay. Uh, altitude, so that when I have patients who live here, for instance, or patients who live uh, when I was in Seattle or, or San Diego, basically sea level, if they had bad emphysema, a two, three, eight-hour flight uh, would not be tolerated very well. So they have to have supplemental oxygen. Oh. Uh, anyway, that, that was pretty much my question. I appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Ron. Appreciate it. Cola, your name, please. How can we help you? Uh, this is Dolores. Dolores, good morning to you. Good morning. Doctor, I moved here from uh, sea level, and uh, I had a touch of emphysema. Nothing serious, but I was on oxygen two liters a, at night, and only at night. Well, I've been here, I came here a year ago, and in March they um, discovered that I was having a problem with the oxygen. And it's surprising to me because I skied uh what twelve thousand feet sometimes uh ten thousand you know it's uh, uh big sky is the last place i skied anyway my problem now is i'm on oxygen 24 7 hmm. and i'm up to four liters and is there anything i can do about this since you're a specialist in this area i would appreciate any advice yes uh well i am very familiar with your problem and uh, sympathize with it. And I think that the history of your having uh, necessarily needed oxygen at night is common because as we sleep, we tend to breathe a little bit less just because we're relaxed, but our oxygen level can fall to low levels so that nighttime oxygen is helpful for patients like you. Over uh, time, then you add the element of a little bit higher altitude, and as I mentioned earlier, it's just high enough here that it it may trigger uh, adverse responses to low oxygen, and thus you may need oxygen all the time, as it sounds like your physician has prescribed for you. And, um, you know, if the important thing is to take the best care of your health in terms of getting as much exercise, which may be just walking, which is perfectly fine, whether you're skiing anymore or not, really. Uh, that'd be great if you can, but if you're using oxygen <coughs> and going to higher altitude, uh, I'm inferring that it's more difficult or not possible. But to do exercise, to eat well, and there may come a point, and there have been studies in Colorado that have shown patients with underlying lung disease, whether it's fibrosis or emphysema, have had to move down to lower altitudes. So that, uh, you know, I hope that isn't the, the case for you and that you can continue to uh, love living here and staying here. But it, isn't, it is something that will need to be discussed with you and your physician if your emphysema gets worse. And I assume you've stopped smoking. Oh, I stopped smoking 20 years ago. Excellent. Well, that was the first best thing you did for your health. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Because so, your emphysema would have progressed much more rapidly uh, if you would continue to smoke. And those data are very 
very obvious. So good mm-hmm. luck to you. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Dolores. All the best to you. She brings up a, a disorder, emphysema, which I think we should spend a little bit of time with because the number one cause is smoking, but it doesn't always have to be smoking. Is that right? That That's correct. And as uh, you alluded to, the large, large majority of patients with emphysema uh, are smokers. There are some genetic disorders, in other words, those that are inherited that uh, you, you chose your parents for, <laughs> for better yes. or worse, yeah. um, that can lead to an emphysema type of problem that, as I say, you don't have much choice over, although it has been well shown that if you smoke and have the genetic predisposition that it can become very severe within, you know, in your 30s and so forth. Now, genetics is such a critical part of all of this Mm. because we all have friends or relatives who've smoked into their 70s or 80s, and they say, look, I don't have any lung disease. And they obviously have some, but they may not be, you know, knocked down by it. But it clears symptoms, yeah. Yeah, and what has been uh, learned over the the last 20 or 30 years is that the genetic predisposition is manifest with greater or less severity in each of us. So that uh, the the bottom line is we, we... had to choose our parents fairly well, but also the the bottom bottom line for us to improve our health is not to start or to stop smoking if you have. Hmm. Okay. Any suggestions that people can do for emphysema? Well, I think once that diagnosis has been made, and that is, it's so interesting. It's a, it's a process that's evolved when somebody when a patient comes to us. That a process has been going on for decades. Okay. And they may say, oh, I did, I've never had any lung problems until you know, three months ago. And then you do breathing tests that we do at the hospital mm-hmm. and look that uh, their, their emphysema is moderate or even severe. And so we know historically this has been going on for a long, long time. I see. But if a physician gives you the diagnosis of emphysema yeah. and it's been given properly, first thing is stop smoking. Second thing is to try to stay as active as possible within the limits of your disease. Mm-hmm. To eat well, keep your weight appropriate because the more weight demands more of your metabolism. And uh, if necessary, use the appropriate medications, uh, which are pretty safe mm-hmm. in terms of your health. We always like to minimize extra drugs, mm-hmm. but many of our patients require some for the improvement of their their disease or to stave off the worsening of their disease. Mm -hmm. So I think to be compliant, to stop smoking, and to stay as active as possible is really critical. When you talk about bronchitis, we're talking about the bronchial tubes that are inflamed in the lungs. And I'd like you to give more details on that. When you talk about pulmonary fibrosis, you talk about the, um, the air sacs in the lungs, the actual air bubbles that become that that start to deteriorate, become infected, and become scar tissue. What happens in emphysema? Mm -hmm. Well, emphysema is sort of the the far extreme of what occurs in terms of obstructive airway disease. By obstruction, I'm referring to those entities that cause a decrease in airflow that we talked about earlier. Mm -hmm. In other words, the difference between breathing through a garden hose and a drinking straw. Yeah. And inflammation of the cells of the airways, whether it's from asthma or smoking, lead to narrowing of the airways. 
Well, the airways here, so there is a difference between bronchial tubes yes. and airways, right? Well, no, I'm referring to the airways as all of the bronchial tubes. In other words, the trachea is the big one that goes okay. down the middle, mm -hmm. and then it divides to the right and the left, and then those airways, the various bronchi and bronchioles, divide into you know thousands of smaller and smaller Like a, like a tree, the yes. kind of branches, so... Perfect, okay. yeah. All right. And those are the airways, and it's... That part of the lung that becomes inflamed and edematous uh, with secretions from asthma. Okay. Now bronchitis. Yeah. People with asthma can have bronchitis, and its definition is an obstructive type of impairment in your physiology that is almost always worsened by smoking. And people with chronic bronchitis have chronic cough and sputum production. Mm. Uh, you know sometimes every day, sometimes every, a few weeks out of every month, that can lead, with, uh, can lead to emphysema mm -hmm. because that ongoing inflammation can cause breakdown then of the lung tissue. And emphysema is really like Swiss cheese. Okay. In other words, if you take a section of the lung, uh, big holes and patches of it are broken down like Swiss cheese. I see. But so the bronchial tubes, well, some people have chronic bronchitis. And emphysema is also chronic. It, yeah. it, it can start slow and then it can go chronic. All right. Well, uh, this is good because I, I, I'm a very visual person. I try to visualize what you're saying so that I can say, okay, this is how, this is how I see this. And I may have to grab some pictures so that I can look at the lungs and you can tell us. Okay. On the air. So All right. <laughs> and then we'll, we'll see you on the radio. Yeah, we'll see you on the radio. <laughs> Charles Osgood right. says. All right, folks. Uh, uh, Dr. Robert Cheney, just moving to the Gallatin Valley in June, is a medical doctor and he is a pulmonary critical care physician. He is with us for another hour. So we hope that you stay with us. Um, very interesting stuff talking about lung health uh, because we take things for granted until something goes kaput. And we have a caller who would like to talk to you, Dr. Shaney. Caller, good morning. What is your name and how can we help you, please? This is Vernon again. Yeah, Vernon. Quick story. My wife and I first married and we tried to settle in the Durango, Colorado area. And we were camping up in the San Juan National Forest, and she got pregnant. When she became pregnant, she was uh, sick as a dog with morning sickness 24-7. And when we got back down, on, we had to leave the area. We kind of figured out what was going on. I got down off of the mountains, and down. she stayed sick until we got to the elevation uh, equivalent to Amarillo, Texas, and never had any more morning sickness after that. Mm -hmm. Beyond just a little normal in the morning. And that was our first brush with uh, mountain altitude sickness. It really exasperated her uh, morning sickness. Mm -hmm. um, my question, my wife wanted me to call. <clears throat> I have a persistent cough, and I have uh, what looks like light bruising at the base of my uh, rib cage on the sides where my arms hang. And uh, I have uh, a persistent reoccurring cough that got worse while I was using a certain blood pressure medicine, switched the medicine, and it got less severe, but I still have it, especially in the morning. Uh, am I still talking of reaction to medicine, or is there anything you can comment based on that little scenario? Yeah, very interesting. The uh, blood pressure medication that sounds like, and I'm just guessing a little bit, but is one that is associated at times, it's an excellent medication, by the way, 
relatively new over the last 10 years or so, but it is associated in some patients with a very aggravating persistent cough, and thus it has to be stopped. Most of the time, in my experience, that when that medication is stopped, the cough uh, does go away. Uh, the persistence of it, I don't know for sure. I assume you don't have any other lung disease and that you don't smoke. Is that I quit smoking when I was 18. Okay, very good. So that it may be just a lingering effect of the medication. How long ago did you stop the medication? Well, I've been on a, an alternate medication for over a year now. Okay. And the, the previous medication, the coughing got more severe continually until I was uh, convulsing to the point where I couldn't, I couldn't function. And now I have a persistent uh, morning cough that uh, worries my wife. <laughs> um, well, as I say, it, it could be at a lingering effect. It sounds like you really had uh, the bad side effects from that one medication, which... Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, and it may just be the airways, meaning your trachea and bronchi and so forth, still being irritated from that uh, really bad episode of cough. The airways are very sensitive, and if one gets a, a viral bronchitis, for instance, sometimes it's months before the cough it totally goes away. And I'm just guessing a little bit, but it may be that it's a lingering effect of the uh, medication, given that your health sounds like it's otherwise pretty good. Uh, it's getting better. <laughs> good. Yeah, good. Well, I, I think uh, you can always get back in touch and we can uh, chat if it doesn't go away in the next, say, six months. But uh, it sounds like you had a really bad bout of that side effect. Okay. I, my wife worries about the little bruising marks on the side of my lung cage, rib cage. Uh, you mean on the outside? You can see them from the outside. Yeah, you can see them through the skin. It's like maybe somebody punched me on both sides, but not not a deep bruise. It's, it's a mild-looking bruise. Well, that's interesting. I haven't heard of that before, other than the fact that the coughing certainly can irritate the ribs and the sternum or the breastbone and things like that, and you can get inflammation. I haven't heard of the bruising. I guess I would just... Make sure your physician takes a look at those because bruising can be a sign of other things as well. So yeah, he's he's totally stumped. Oh, okay. He he, he was amazed at uh, my improvement when we switched medications, but uh, a pharmacist helped me to solve the puzzle with the coughing on the previous medication. You bet. Well, so. sometimes it takes a team to do it, but uh, I guess I'd have to see the bruising. It it sounds interesting and unusual. Uh, if it's been there for a while and you're doing okay, it. Uh, you know, it's probably nothing serious. But uh, keep... how long have you had it, Vernon? How long have you had the bruising or the discoloration? A couple of years. Oh wow! This is not something that just came on. No, it it was um, noticed while I was having the bad coughing, but it it's it's remained afterwards. Interesting. Um, I don't have an answer for you. Uh, certainly would be worth, as you say, your physician has looked at it, and I, I assume has looked for other causes of bruising. Uh, blood things and things like that. Hmm. Um, those kinds of things come to mind as well. How, how big is the area, Vernon? Is it left and right? And how about is it, it is it round? Is it it's uh, if I cut my hands, I can cover the whole area, and you wouldn't see it. But it's, it's maybe fist size on each side. Hmm. Wow. Well, uh, the fact that it's been there for a couple of years and it hasn't gotten worse is reassuring. Although, still, I think. It ought to be checked periodically because it could be a reflection of some other bruising problem. You don't bruise anywhere else, do you? No. Okay. Um, 
Last question. Um, uh, my medical vocabulary is not very good. Could you briefly uh, define uh, the uh, different kinds of edema that you've uh, mentioned over the last uh, couple hours, uh, pulmonary and otherwise? Yes. The, uh, the two that I mentioned particularly uh, are high-altitude pulmonary and high-altitude cerebral edema. Now, edema is a nonspecific term, which just means fluid that is accumulated outside of the blood vessels. Now, you can get edema in your brain and your skin and muscles and lungs and so forth. Congestive heart failure, for instance, causes edema in the lungs. But in terms of the two altitude-related edemas, the uh, high-altitude pulmonary edema, which can impair oxygen uh, transport in the lung, and it can be severe, and it can be fatal, is a type of edema that results in some people who develop high blood pressure, not in their, not in the classic blood pressure way, but high pressures in their lungs. And the pressure within the vessels causes stretching of those vessels and leak. Now, having said that, if the individual who gets high-altitude pulmonary edema, which usually occurs in the first two to three days at a new altitude, usually 9 to 10 to 12,000 feet or so. Uh, if the patient rests or takes oxygen or uses an occasional medication that we know works, it goes away and it, it, it's not a problem. Cerebral edema occurs usually higher, 11 to 12 to 13,000 feet or higher, again without acclimatization, people going to a higher altitude, and cerebral edema is fluid in the brain that it is outside the blood vessels. And uh, as in many types of cerebral edema or brain edema, it can be very serious and, and fatal. So it's important when the symptoms first come from either one of those altitude edemas to recognize them and either treat them or come down, go to lower altitude because they'll go away. Well, thanks for the show, gentlemen. Uh, thank it's you so much one. for the call. Good really luck. Appreciate it. We were talking about emphysema in the last half hour. We brought that up, and you were explaining to us the linings of the lungs as well as, uh, uh, you know, you were talking about bronchitis and emphysema, asthma, how these are connected. And before we, we answer that, I have a question for you. I heard, and I'll tell me if this is right, that the lungs are actually moving because the rib cage pulls it out and pushes it in. Is that the way it works, actually? Well, Because you would think that if you inhale that your rib cage comes out, so that the lungs are pushing the ribcage out, but that's not the way it works. Is well, that right? it's it's actually an interesting relationship between the ribcage and the lungs. Okay. And the diaphragm. Mm -hmm. The diaphragms are the big muscles that are uh, you know, at the bottom of the lungs that contract and pull the lungs down and suck air in, is, is one way to put it. The lungs are like a bellows and just moving air in and out. So when the diaphragms contract and the intercostal muscles contract, the rib cage uh, expands. And again, it's just like developing negative pressure in the chest cavity so that air comes in. Okay? Okay. So, but it is an interesting relationship between the lungs who, if you didn't have a rib cage, okay. and you took the lungs out and put them on the table, they would be smaller. Oh. If you took the rib cage without the lungs, they would get bigger. So it's sort of like the yin and the yang between the rib cage wanting to be oh. bigger and the lungs wanting to be smaller. Yeah, yeah. And of course they're connected by a very thin fluid 
uh, the lining in the so-called pleural space, the lining of the lungs, that keeps the lungs tacked to the rib cage and allows the lungs to get bigger and smaller and bigger and smaller with each breath. Oh. So just like a bellows, I guess is a simple way to put it. Well, then I'm, I'm start, I think all of a sudden about water polo players. Even when, when you've played uh, water polo a lot when you were younger, these people often have a much, much bigger chest. Mm-hmm. Is there a connection there? Well, th- th- that's a, a question that is really interesting because it has been shown that if you take up some aerobic sport, heavy-duty swimming or high-altitude climbing, at age 19 or above, your yeah. lungs don't change. Okay. The, the muscles get stronger, of course, because yeah. you're breathing more, but the lungs don't change. If, on the other hand, you take up uh, age group swimming, as a lot of kids do at age 7 or 8, and they do that through their teenage years, yeah. their lungs are tend to be larger than comparable kids. Okay. And that is... Because the stimulation, I think, of the, uh, of the heavy breathing from athletic training during the formative years, as the body is still developing, uh, the lungs will be bigger. Same thing happens in people who are born and raised at high altitude. Their lungs are bigger and have more capacity for oxygen transfer than people at low altitude. So they have a tendency to have a bigger chest. Yes. Chest cavity. Yes. Oh. Huh. Huh. All right, going back to emphysema and bronchitis. So in bronchitis, we're really talking about inflammation of all the little tubes that run through the body that, that, that bring the oxygen into the, into the lungs. Is that right? Correct. And then because pulmonary fibrosis is really not the bronchial tubes, this is really the, the lung tissue itself. It's called the alveoli. Is that how you say Well, the uh, little bit of anatomy, the... Bronchial tubes, yes, which, as we talked about, branch out into thousands of uh, little branches. Branches uh-huh. uh, go directly to the alveoli, and the alveoli are the air sacs. The air comes into the alveoli, and then there are a bunch of blood vessels around each of the alveoli. Okay. And humans have millions of alveoli. Mm-hmm. Each individual has that, so they're very small. But that the blood that goes around the alveoli picks up the oxygen and gives off the carbon dioxide, and it's breathed in and out. In a, in a normal system. Yeah. Now, something like pulmonary fibrosis yeah. can destroy all of those structures, the, the blood vessels, the alveoli, and so forth, but it's thought to begin in the supporting structure of the alveoli, the so-called interstitial spaces of the lung. Mm-hmm. So the lung is, you know, it has to be a structure that has integrity that will stay inflated, and the alveoli do that, but also these supporting structures uh, the, the fibrous tissue and so forth helps support the, the, the integrity of the lung. Yeah. So uh, interstitial fibrosis is in fact that, pulmonary fibrosis, that those structures, supporting structures, become inflamed, become scarred, and in the process destroy the alveoli and the blood vessels. Right, and then uh, you build scar tissue. Yes, and then it just keeps going like a like a like a train just keep going and moving and expanding and eventually you just can't breathe. Correct. I mean, that, that happens. Now, uh, some people say that it could happen because of environmental toxins. Uh, in my mother's case, they're saying it may be that she had an allergy to trees that were growing around her house. Other theories are it could be from secondhand smoke. 
And my father was a smoker, but he died 31 years ago. My mother never smoked mm-hmm. in her life. Is that true? Those are two possibilities? Well, I think we don't know what causes interstitial fibrosis. That's right. There's we, nobody I mean, a cure either, huh? No. There's, huh. there's no real cure. You can suppress its progression sometimes with medication, or lung transplantation has been used as well, which sometimes is, is helpful. Huh. Uh, but the, uh, and again, no one knows what causes it. There are certain types of other scarring processes in the lung that we know are caused by inhaled toxins. Asbestos, for instance, which you know, has gotten a lot of publicity, yeah. and appropriately so, yeah. causes scarring in the lungs, mm-hmm. and the lungs become diseased. Mm-hmm. Now, in terms of inhaled allergies, the, uh, as you alluded to, that your mother may have been exposed to in terms of um, trees, trees mm-hmm. uh, affects more of the airways than the interstitium, meaning the uh, it, it, more of the airways and alveoli than the actual supporting structures. In the secondhand smoke, that too is more of an airway type of process. Okay. So, you know, I, I think that although they may have contributed to your mother's decline in lung function, yeah, uh, those kinds of things would probably not have been the primary um, irritant that that caused the pro- progression of her interstitial fibrosis. Uh, one thing that they have told her in the Netherlands, the lung specialist said, usually when you're older, and she just turned 80 in March, when you're older, it may actually go slower. And in her case, it seems to start to accelerate. She has always been healthy, um, I have to say, lived on her own, did everything. She, she may cooks her own food. She doesn't eat junk or anything. Uh, walked. She never drove a car, never learned how to drive, so you always walked everywhere. Um, is that strange that things accelerate in her case, that it, uh, that it was diagnosed officially about a year ago and that all of a sudden it accelerated and that she is in hospice right now? Mm-hmm. That, um, is that rare for older age to go so fast? Uh, two comments. One, I think the fact that she has lived till 80 and has done reasonably well, obviously well. with her life, well. is a reflection of her lifestyle prior to that. Yeah. In mm-hmm. other words, she's been active, she's walked, and so forth. In terms of the interstitial fibrosis, there are a whole bunch of different categories of those, and they're unpredictable in terms of how they progress. Mm-hmm. Now, you can one can sometimes tell from a lung biopsy, in other words, taking a piece of the tissue, yeah. that this type of interstitial fibrosis may be one that will progress quickly, and others that may progress a little bit less quickly. Some just plateau and don't get worse. Correct. So it's very unpredictable. And it's not unusual uh, for your mother at 80 to have it progress. Now, it's probably been going on for a long time. Well, I know that she was complaining about allergies a few years ago, that she would have it during the summer, spring, Mm -hmm. summer, and then it would be gone. Mm -hmm. And so she just figured it was an allergy, but this last year it stayed longer, and we we suggested she better see a doctor and... And that's when the thing started rolling. But, uh, yeah, so that's interesting. Now, um, going back to, to the bronchitis, uh, bronchitis is something that comes up regularly. Uh, we can have smoker's bronchitis, but we can also have bronchitis for other reasons. And bronchitis is something that happens more in this area, in the Gallatin Valley. Uh, people come in, uh, even see me, and say, what do you have for bronchitis? Uh, tell us a little bit more. Is it always is it is it more acute and goes away, or is it something that is building up and will become a chronic problem? Good, good question. I think uh, 
bronchitis is again sort of a nonspecific term of just inflammation of the airways that leads to secretions and cough and so forth. Many people get an acute bronchitis, usually from a, a virus or bacteria that's transient and may never come back, mm-hmm. or may occur once a year and not progress. The other type of bronchitis that we talked about earlier, the chronic bronchitis, is almost always from smoking, does not go away if the smoking continues, Mm -hmm. and can progress to emphysema. Right. Okay. So that's it. So it turns into emphysema then. The chronic bronchitis. Right. Now, again, as I say, the, the type of acute bronchitis that all of us get at some point in time. Right, right, right. It doesn't progress and just comes and goes or may never come back. Mm, I know we're coming up to a break, but I, I kind of wonder if it is diagnosed early uh, in Western medicine, are there actually solutions to, to help improve the situation? Let's say the person is not smoking, or is it usually medication that is used in order to, to, to ease the symptoms? As I, I want to know from you when we come back okay. if you actually have some suggestions what people could do in order to improve the situation without using medication. Okay. Okay? Sure. But stay tuned, please. Uh, we're going to be right back. Some of the disorders, as we, we mentioned, by changing altitude, uh, Dr. Shaney, it can affect other disorders, people with certain blood disorders, people with heart issues. So uh, makes sense, heart issue. Talking first of all about the connection between heart and lungs. What is so special about it? Uh, because one thing, I, I'm sorry that I go back to my mom over here, but they say one thing is going to give in first. That will be the heart. Uh, she has a strong heart, so that that keeps working, but it has to work harder and harder and harder all the time. Is it the heart that can affect the lungs, or is it the lungs that affect the heart? Well, it can be either way. Okay. And they're obviously uh, intimately connected. Mm-hmm. Uh, the heart is, of course, pumping blood to the lungs and then bringing that blood back to the left side of the heart, the big pump side of the heart, which then pumps it to the body. So it's a, it's a cycle that is, is going on. So that if, for instance, somebody develops uh, congestive heart failure, in other words, where the muscle of the heart just isn't working as well, uh, edema can back up, as I talked about earlier, mm-hmm. into the lungs. So mm-hmm. you get pulmonary edema, which is a lung condition, but it's secondary to a heart condition. On the other side of the coin, the two areas that we've alluded to earlier this morning, one, high altitude, and the second, other types of lung diseases, whether it be emphysema, bronchitis, or interstitial fibrosis, that make it more difficult for the right side of the heart to pump blood into the lungs because the pressures are built up within the lungs. In other words, if we all go to high altitude, we will develop some constriction of the blood vessels from the right side of the heart into the lungs, and we'll develop what's called a little bit of pulmonary hypertension. If we come down, that goes away. Uh, It may never be at a high enough uh, degree to hurt one, but pulmonary hypertension, if it progresses, either because of lung disease or living at higher altitudes, uh, can cause failure of the right side of the heart. And the right side is responsible for pumping the blood into into the lungs. Yes, and uh, then when it comes out of the lungs, it goes to the left side. Right. And then the left side pumps it into the rest of the body. Exactly. I see. And so the left side of the, uh, the heart, the pressure that it sees is what we measure in the doctor's office, the, the blood pressure. Yeah. That's the left-sided blood pressure okay. uh, or from the left side of the heart. On the right side, it's harder to measure. We have to use either putting a catheter in the heart or echocardiography or other techniques. But 
that's a much lower pressure system. Hmm. So that the right side of the heart is used to much lower pressures. Yes. But if uh, one lives at high altitude for too long or develops some kind of lung process, emphysema or pulmonary fibrosis, the right side of the heart starts to fail. So pretty much the first work, it's usually a heart, lung, mm -hmm. lung, heart, and then the rest of the body. Yes. Huh. Exactly. What about the brain? How, when is the brain? Is the brain next after the lungs? The brain. Well, the brain. Uh, it, 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 of course, it requires constant blood flow, mm -hmm. and it is very finely regulated by certain reflexes within the blood vessels that supplies a pretty constant blood flow, uh, and thus and thus oxygen supply to the brain. If we go to high altitude, yeah, for instance, yeah, uh, there's lower oxygen in the blood whether it's moderate or real high altitude, mm -hmm. so that the blood flow to the brain regulates itself in that situation at high altitude, it dilates so that more blood is supplied to the brain. Okay, okay. It's uh, such that a constant supply of oxygen, consistent supply, is there for the brain's nutrition. And that's why some of the rest of the body doesn't get it, doesn't get enough of it maybe, and then, the, uh, then you get tired? Well, it's interesting that... Uh, one of the things that happens at really high altitudes, if we wonder, I mean, talking about, let's say, 15 to 20 or 1,000 feet or higher, that we, one of the reasons our exercise performance is limited is that we are using so much work just to breathe mm -hmm. that those muscles, the diaphragm, the intercostals, require blood flow. And so the blood flow that would otherwise normally go to the legs right. to help you climb or run or do ski or whatever is stolen from the legs just to supply the, the breathing muscles. Yeah. So that's what we call a cardiac steal. Mm -hmm. So the, the part of the limitation to performance at high altitude, particularly really high altitude, is that need to breathe more and the need for the heart to supply more blood flow to okay. those muscles. So, so, so talking again about high altitude here, uh, do you sleep more when you're up in the mountain? Do you, when, when you're more tired at the end of the day? Because <laughs> some people... When they go up to the Mount Everest, for example, they, they start in the middle of the night, right? Or three in the yes. morning or something. Yes. But have they been sleeping then for eight hours or they don't do that? You, you well, sleep more or less when you're up that high? Well, I think uh, in my experience at really high altitudes, including Mount Everest, the, uh, of course, it's dark early and you go to your sleeping bag and so forth. And yeah. uh, the, the quality of sleep is worse. You may be in the sack, so to speak, longer Oh. Uh, of course, some, some mornings you're, you are going to get up at 1 or 2 o'clock to start climbing where it's a little bit safer and it's colder oh. because of snow conditions and so forth. But the quality of the sleep, even if you sleep through the entire night, is, is less. Okay. Uh, one can develop what's called periodic breathing, mm -hmm. which is somewhat like sleep apnea, yeah, yeah, where yeah. you breathe more and breathe less, breathe more and breathe less, and, and that keeps waking you throughout the night. And so the quality of sleep is not as good at really high altitudes. Hmm. All right. The brain gets, gets, so the heart goes to the lung, lung goes to the heart, heart goes to the brain, and then it goes to the rest of the body as well. What we see, we, we, you just mentioned the word sleep apnea. More and more people, I discover, having sleep apnea right where we live. It has not always to do with weight. Some people are heavier. And because of that, the weight has an effect on the way they sleep. Some people are just normally built. Where do, what does sleep apnea have to do with lung health here? Well, it's very interesting that uh, I've been around long enough, and during my training uh, in the 70s and early 80s, sleep 
disordered breathing mm-hmm. uh, was something that was just being described. And uh, there, there are a number of different types of sleep disordered breathing, but uh, the lung is the primary part of, of it. In other words, people breathe more, they breathe less. Uh, they sometimes obstruct their airways and can't breathe so that their oxygen level falls. Uh, they suffer from low oxygen during those bouts, and that's a recurrent cycle all night long. We did a lot of uh, sleep research on Mount Everest and also on Denali in Alaska because of the nature of abnormal breathing that people have at high altitude. Yeah. Uh, here, as you mentioned earlier, Dr. Pasquale and Dr. Person, the other pulmonary physician in our group, uh, concentrates on the normal sleep disordered breathing, of which there is a lot. And it's often thought that all of us have some sleep disordered breathing. Okay. Okay. But if it's severe enough, it can cause problems with the heart, blood pressure, lungs, and so forth. Is there an explanation for it? Well, I think there's so many different types that it's it's difficult. It's to, really a specialty it, by it's itself. It's a specialty by itself. But one of the more common ones is obstructive sleep apnea. Mm-hmm. And that's where all of the tissues of the upper airway periodically collapse uh-huh. and, and basically occlude the airway. Mm-hmm. And then the body sort of struggles for a while trying to overcome that. And then the person usually wakes up. Wakes up and doesn't know why. Yeah. And sometimes they don't know they wake up. Uh-huh. But they actually, their brain wakes up and it opens up their airway. They breathe more, get more oxygen, and then they occlude again. Uh-huh. And this can occur many times per hour. I uh, talk to people regularly at the store that they have sleep problems, either that they cannot fall asleep or not stay asleep. I've heard good news about people doing some magnesium, take magnesium, and that makes them usually relax the muscles more and they can sleep through the night. But there are people who wake up anyway, and they say they're not thinking about anything, they're not thinking about anything, so it's not that the brain is very active. They just cannot sleep. They wake up, and then they lay over there. That could actually be a sleep apnea then. That could be maybe that they woke up because of some respiratory issue, and they don't know about it. That's correct. So they should actually see somebody like yourself or maybe a sleep specialist. Yes, absolutely. I think the important thing is if one is not sleeping well, uh, first to go to their primary care physician, whether it's their family doc or internist uh, or one of us as well, and describe the symptoms, then it's really an important part of the physician to always take a sleep history mm-hmm. when they're doing a history and physical because some people don't know they're having abnormal mm-hmm. sleep. Mm-hmm. And uh, over time, as I mentioned earlier, uh, sleep-disordered breathing can cause a lot of long-term problems, yeah. let, let alone just being tired all day. Oh, absolutely. Uh, truck drivers, for instance, with yes. sleep apnea, uh-huh. dozing off is not a good thing. No, not really. And in Seattle, I had a couple of uh, executives from Boeing who were falling asleep during their big executive meetings and they had sleep apnea <laughs> because they were not getting good night's sleep. Yeah. And it, it can lead to depression, impotence, uh, lethargy and somnolence all day. And some people, sometimes people have these for years. Mm-hmm. And when they get treated, all of a sudden they're cured. And for the first time in five to 10 years, they've had a good night's sleep. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've seen it actually uh, have that effect overnight when mm-hmm. it's treated. People are so thankful. Hmm. We talked in the first hour about teenagers who get asthma and they have the inhalers. I hear that having these inhalers for a long period of time is probably not really beneficial. It, it helps to alleviate some of the symptoms. 
what is your take on on medication that is used for lung conditions? Do you see that it is indeed beneficial in the long run? Do you suggest uh, your patients to maybe try something different? Have you come up with different suggestions? I mentioned drinking water. You said hydration is very important, may actually alleviate some of the symptoms. Have you seen, uh, not have you seen, but are you working with your patients that you make suggestions otherwise? Yes, I think my premise is always to minimize the number of medications in any patient. However, particularly in patients with persistent asthma, uh, they probably need to be on medications. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. as I mentioned also earlier, I think last hour, that patients with persistent, reasonably bad asthma over time because of the inflammation, yeah. because of the scarring, yeah. they get remodeling in their airways that may not be reversible. I see. So that use of the uh, standard inhalers uh, with some of the inhaled steroids, the inhaled uh, what we call beta agonists that help relax the muscle, mm -hmm. over time probably minimize that remodeling mm -hmm. and end up with you know a better lung 10 to 20 years down the, the road. I see. Um, but again, some patients have very mild intermittent asthma once a month so they obviously don't need medications every day that's my my approach mm -hmm. uh, other things are just a, a better lifestyle staying away from secondhand smoke not smoking of course which we talked about earlier is just yeah. absolutely critical yeah, yeah. Uh, in an asthmatic or a patient with chronic bronchitis and environmental exposure to try to figure out what are the allergies, what are the things that trigger. Maybe in the workplace. In the, oh, could yeah. could be working indoors Occupational a lot. asthma is yes, a, a real problem. I saw a lot of that in Seattle. Patients coming from the workplace, you could take a history that uh, by Friday they were a mess. Uh, over the weekend they would get better. Monday they'd feel much better. And you could track down what it was they were inhaling in the workplace that was leading to this episodic but recalcitrant asthma. Mm -hmm. So, yes, a, a careful history is uh, taken by the physician is very important to have patients, if necessary, change their lifestyle. So when, the, let's say it is a, a workplace-induced asthma, we talk about asthma in this case, that becomes an outside stressor on the body and in this case affecting the lungs. Uh, there is also asthma that is induced because of emotional stresses. Is that right? I mean, how do you deal with that as a doctor? Yes, I mean, that, that's also a, a, a very important thing. The classic student correct, with a lot of stress, a high school or college student, uh, from emotional stress from schoolwork or relationships or whatever it may mm -hmm. be, mm -hmm. we don't know how, but seems to be associated with uh, asthmatic episodes at times. Mm -hmm. So... Again, trying to work with your patient or work with your child mm -hmm. to try to figure out what those stressors are to minimize them or to make them deal with them better actually is, is part of, I think, therapy and every physician's job. Mm -hmm. Is this uh, this is also becomes still part of internal medicine then when you deal with a with an emotional stress induced uh, or like an anxiety attack induced uh, asthma? Yes. So what is all? What is internal medicine? Is it everything that is inside the body? Well, in in my situation as a specialist, a subspecialist, uh, of course, we practice a lot of internal medicine. We have internal medicine training. Uh, we have so-called board certification internal medicine. Then we can go on to the subspecialty training. And as a pulmonologist and a critical care physician, uh, as a subspecialist, we still practice a lot of internal medicine mm -hmm. because. 
patients have other problems. Yeah, they're and all I, related. Yeah. It's all related. Mm-hmm. And it's really mm-hmm. important, I think, for us to, to act in part as a patient's primary care physician, not to take those patients away from their primary care physician if they have one, but to realize that internal medicine is so integral to pulmonary and critical care medicine that we have to practice both. Mm-hmm. But So internal medicine is everything inside the body. So it is different than as a general practitioner who may have to deal with whatever comes his or her way and then send it to somebody like you and say, oh, you better go see a lung specialist about this one. So you are a specialist in lungs, but it is considered internal me- still part of internal medicine. Yes, that's exactly that's how right. how it works. Yeah, internal medicine, of course, includes cardiology, nephrology, which is study of the kidneys, gastrointestinal, endocrinology, rheumatology, mm-hmm. uh, et cetera, et cetera. So there are a number of subspecialists. <laughs> mm-hmm. And each of the subspecialists practices uh, uh, internal medicine as part of their subspecialty. What's really important, I think, is that for the primary care physician, yeah. the internist, the internal medicine, the family physician, is to recognize, and I do this when I have patients with, say, rheumatologic problems that I don't deal with every day for me to get advice from a rheumatologist Mm -hmm. because that specialist can address that problem a little bit better and then between the rheumatologist and myself or the internist or the family physician you can coordinate the best most efficient care to your patient. I see. Uh, My mother is uh, getting morphine at this point, is morphine also uh, applied to people who are not in the final stages of their life when they have a lung condition? Uh, yes, at times we use morphine. It's just still it's been around forever. It's a great drug when used. It's properly. a relaxer, right? A total relaxer for the lung tissue as well. I understand. Well, what it does, uh, we because use she it. was having, she was starting to have more coughing spells, and they mm-hmm. said we'll give you some extra morphine. I think she's getting ten milligrams twice a day now, mm-hmm. but it really has has reduced her coughing substantially. Yes, it, it does suppress cough. It's a pain medication, of course, and it helps alleviate any. Uh, anxiety from uh, shortness of breath mm-hmm. and also direct pain from trauma and things like that. We do use it in the intensive care unit quite a bit and patients on mm-hmm. breathing machines and so forth. Mm-hmm. So uh, it, it's, it's a great drug if used properly. You are working primarily with high altitude, but have you seen in your practice that there is an increase in younger people coming in, or is it uh, really pretty much across the board? Things haven't really changed so much for you in the last 30 years or so. Well, it's... The spectrum is probably the same, although as a a specialist and researcher in exercise and high altitude physiology and and, uh, disease, I do see probably a a little bit more of a range of younger people. Really? By younger, I mean up into middle age and older. I mean, I have a a patient here who's 65, who's healthy as can be, and wants advice on training. How to stay healthy. How to stay healthy. And so I, I did a lot of that in Seattle and... And so uh, I still see, you know, mid-teenagers all the way up to patients in the 90s, mm-hmm. in their 90s. Mm-hmm. But have you seen an increase? One of the worries that we have is uh, teenagers today have more diabetes, more obesity, more bone loss. Do you see something similar with the lungs? Are they smoking more today or are they smoking less? It, it's hard. I think they're, depending on the region of the country, I think uh, youth smoking is decreasing in some and increasing in others. I see. And then the so-called metabolic syndrome, the obesity, I mean, that's a, a big problem. Yeah. And I think in patients who have asthma who and young kids who have asthma and who are obese, it just compounds the problem. So I think 
Yeah, I probably am seeing a few more of the younger younger mm-hmm. folks. I'm just wondering. It's, uh, yeah. It seems like, uh, you know, with all the kids around, of course, the percentages go up. But I, I was just wondering, since some disorders seem to go more and more to younger people, uh, things that usually wouldn't happen until the middle age years are happening now in a younger generation. I was just wondering if you saw something like that as well. Yeah. Maybe, maybe a little bit more in, in lung disease, but not as much as, say, the cardiologist or the general internist or the family yeah. physician are seeing more of the, uh, the, the, the overweight, hypertensive mm-hmm. young person yeah. or diabetic young person. Yeah. Wow, it's, uh, I tell you, it's been, uh, I, I hope that you would like to come back and that we talk more about this because uh, we can talk maybe more specific about certain diseases, specific diseases, and i also like you to come back and indeed talk about some suggestions we have for exercisers, what they can do both in the winter and in the summer in order to get in the best shape they can be. I'd love to. That's an area that I am uh, very passionate about. All right. Well, I really appreciate you came in today. And uh, folks, uh, Dr. Robert Cheney, is available if you call the Bozeman Deaconess Hospital Internal Medicine, and you can call them there at uh, 522-2400, 522-2400. Get acquainted with him. He's a very nice gentleman, and uh, he is a great asset to this community with all the knowledge that he has. We hope you enjoy the rest of your Sunday, and that we'll talk to you again first. Listen to Leslie when she's coming up, and then next week we'll be talking to Chris Bender. Have a great week, and talk to you then. Bye-bye.